Hey everyone, if you love listening to Curbsiders and want to enhance the experience, then now is a great time to join the Curbsiders Patreon with new annual memberships where you can save 10% off the monthly rate. You'll have the option to hear all the episodes ad-free plus twice monthly bonus episodes. You can sign up at patreon.com slash curbsiders. This is a great way to use that CME money that's probably burning a hole in your pocket. Plus support the show so we can keep bringing you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, mini series like teach and addiction medicine, our digest newsletter, and of course, expand our video content. So join the Cashlack family today at patreon.com slash curbsiders. The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my great friend and America's primary care physician, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Paul, how are you doing? I'm, I'm great. America's great, Matt. Thanks for asking. <laughs> All right. Well, this is an episode of The Digest. That's why with us, if you're watching, you can see the beautiful smiling face of Dr. Nora Toronto, who is here with us. Nora, we'll we'll get to you in a second, I guess, but Paul has to do his <laughs> thing first. He gets mad at me. I was going to introduce Nora, Paul, but I just thought... Yeah, no, let's, let's I better do the let important do stuff thing. first, then we'll get to Nora. So just, I would okay. never step on Paul's toes that way. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> Nora, you just sit there and be a beautiful smiling face for a little bit. And I will remind our audience that we are usually the internal medicine podcast, and we typically use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. As Matt alluded to, this is a little bit of a different kind of episode. We're going to be actually recapping some of the Curbsiders Digest, which is why the amazing Dr. Nora Toronto is joining us because she has obviously spearheaded that incredible educational initiative and will be help talking us through some of the articles that she and her team have reviewed. So this is hotcake adjacent, I guess, Matt, but not quite hotcakes. This is more just kind of recapping and talking about sort of newsworthy articles, things that have been exciting or interesting recently to us. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a chance, Nora, you back me up if this is what you think, but I think it's a little bit of a chance to add a little bit more commentary Maybe I'll go a little bit more in depth because the the digest is written in a very like pithy way, so you can just read it in a few minutes. But Nora, what what do you, what's your vision for this? Totally agree. You know, we can we can if we if we need to or want to at some point throw out hot cakes whenever nope. we want. But but it's uh, it's hot cakes adjacent. We're just expanding a little bit on the content in the digest itself and giving some of our some of our brief thoughts and and follow up on on things that we've written about over the last couple of months. And we're hoping to do an episode like this each month. You and Rahul, Dr. Rahul Ganatra, will be uh, featured on these episodes since you're you're smarter than Paul and I and can really help us through these, uh, through these articles. Um, I did want to remind the audience that this and most episodes are available for CME through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And Paul, I think we should thank the audience because we've a lot of new patrons lately and uh, the Patreon, uh, they're on there. They're asking us questions, hanging out. I guess you're getting movie and book recommendations. More music than anything. I've been sharing my my vinyl collection as I achieve my final form of, um, you know, media, physical media guy. And the the Patreons have been very cool. And we've sort of been sharing music tips and stuff. Yeah. So thanks to everybody who has signed up. it really helps us do things like like have the digest and and produce all these episodes. We have a big team of people working on the show, editors, uh, writers, artists, and uh, producers, and we really uh, appreciate your support in funding that. So patreon.com slash curbsiders if you want to be part of that. And with that, we should start with a topic that was covered by Dr. Jen DeSalvo in issue number 44 of the Digest, and this was the clear outcomes trial of bempedoic acid uh, looking at cardiovascular outcomes in statin intolerant patients. Uh, Paul, do you know how they got clear from this? Cholesterol lowering via bempedoic acid (laughs) and ACL inhibiting regimen. Terrific. 
I guess they took the E from bempedoic acid. From bempedoic acid, acid, of course. Yeah. Right. Why would you use the B with that? You know, I mean. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, it's why didn't they? The car was right there. It's a, it's a real, it's a missed opportunity. So, Paul, as a trial head, uh, how do you rate this one? (laughs) By name, by name only. Just names only. Yeah, I mean, one out of five, clearly. Like, I mean, especially, (laughs) like, I think our cardiology colleagues have done pretty well a lot of the time. I mean, we get like Jupiter and like ones that sound cool. Like, clear isn't even a cool name. And then to to cheat and throw the ephemeric acid in there is, frankly, shameful. I'm just going to say it, and I I don't care who I offend. Right. So. I mean, the bepidoic, <laughs> right. <laughs> so bepidoic acid is, you know, I was excited about this. It's an oral alternative to statins. And the question is, do we think this is going to replace statins or is this going to be supplementing statins? And there was, there was an initial trial, this clear outcomes trial, and then there was a primary prevention trial uh, where they sort of looked at a subgroup of patients from clear. And uh, that definitely made some, some headlines. Um, the initial CLEAR trial just looked at LDL lowering and bempedoic acid lowers LDL if someone's not on a statin by about 28%. And if they're already on maximum tolerated statin, something like 16%. And uh, we know it also lowers CRP. So the hope is that with that, they would be able to prove that there is some lowering of major adverse cardiac events, Paul, or MACE, if you will. I know you, I know you like that acronym. Sure, and make. And make, and make. But they didn't, they didn't look at make in this. So in the main trial, the clear outcomes trial, they found that there was a lowering in the major adverse cardiac events, the composite endpoint. But if you look at it, it was mostly driven by patients with non-fatal or fatal MI or the need for coronary revascularization. The big ticket item like cardiovascular death and all-cause mortality, they weren't able to prove that, that it prevented those. Um, and, the, and the adverse events in this, there, there was about 25% of patients in both groups had some sort of serious adverse event, but specifically ones that we might be curious about, they, it did not show an increased risk of diabetes like you see with statins and uh, muscle symptoms like myalgias are not more common in bempedoic acid. So I, I guess they're seeing that as the market is the patient with muscle symptoms. Nora, reviewing this for the digest, did you have any other thoughts on this, you know, on this drug or this study? Um, I guess one thing that's come up in a number of the different trials is the increased risk of gout also, just worth noting. Um, uh, And then uh, also worth noting that they they did allow some patients who were on really low doses of statins uh, to to participate in the trial, Um, though this was this was. the primary primary goal of this was lo- to look at bempedoic acid in the uh, statin intolerant population. So so it's it's not meant to be a first line therapy, or that was not how it was looked at in this in this trial. This episode is brought to you by Netsuite. You know, audience, maybe your business got to a certain size, and then you started to notice that cracks emerge, things that you used to do in a day. Now they're taking a week, there's too many manual processes, and you don't have one source of truth. Well, if this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite, it's the number one cloud financial system that streamlines your accounting, your financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind, so you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs, that's key performance indicators. And it's going to come in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve your margins. Everything you need all in one place. As a business owner, I know the power of having all the information in one place to help me make better decisions, and this unprecedented offer from NetSuite is a great opportunity to make that possible. So right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance that's absolutely free at netsuite.com slash curbsiders. That's netsuite.com slash curbsiders to get your own KPI checklist netsuite.com slash curbsiders.
Yeah, it it seems like it alters uh, uric acid excretion or metabolism, mm-hmm. and and same thing with creatinine. So that's why they saw an increase in that. Some patients had an increase in LFTs. So one of the editorials that I read was saying you you probably are going to want to monitor those things and think about whether or not someone has a history of gout. Looks like uh, gallstones are also a potential concern. Paul, and you have to wonder about just the existence of statin intolerance as a co-founder. Like, I know this sounds like a weird thing, but you just in general, sicker patients tend to be the ones that have more issues with statins. And even though I'm sure they did all kinds of fancy statistical adjustment, you just can't help wonder if there's not something in the ether that might be influencing at least the mortality um, outcome specifically. But I, I don't mm-hmm. have anything more scientific to say about that than that. Yeah, I wonder how that, how and whether that translates to the the differences we saw between the primary and the secondary prevention arms. Right. I don't, I don't know how it would, but, uh, but it's kind of interesting to think about. So for the clear outcomes trial, just another thing I wanted to point out that the editorialist mentioned, or, or just more of a background on bembidoic acid, saying that the incidence of muscle symptoms actually seemed to be higher in like previous studies where they looked at patients who were taking a statin and then also bembidoic acid, and that bembidoic acid can increase the levels of simvastatin and pravastatin. So patients shouldn't take more than 20 of simvastatin or 40 of pravastatin uh, if they're taking bempedoic acid. Uh, Also, you shouldn't use it with fibrates. And they said that's because of the concern for cholelithiasis. And I found another editorial talking about how uh, concern over risk for tendon rupture. So if patients are taking like doxycycline or fluoroquinolones, they said, uh, don't um, you know, mm-hmm. don't or <laughs> consider or caution them that tendonitis is a possibility and that if they feel tendonitis, they should take it easy. I mean, just between that and the gout, just if you take it, your feet are going to explode. I feel like it's a, a good sort of <laughs> inspiratory guidance. Watch out for your ankles. Exactly. <laughs> okay. And then one more downside <laughs> and practical concern is, uh, you know, if you look at uh, one of the main, one of these coupon websites for medications, uh, the average retail price is around $465, at least in my area. And most of the editorials were saying it's over $400 for a 30-day supply. So who is this for? Um, I mean, if you have someone who's at high risk and they're truly statin intolerant, you've tried all the normal things, decrease the frequency, change the agent, decrease the dose of statin, and they still can't tolerate a statin, then this might be an alternative, um, if they don't, if they can't get a PCSK9 uh, inhibitor, or they don't want to give themselves an injection, then this is a daily oral pill. So I think that's probably going to be the market that this ends up in. Um, there's also sound- a there's a combined pill. I don't know what the cost of this is, but there Zetamibe. is a combined pill of zetamibe and bempedoic acid. So I uh, I can't say whether that's right. more available than than just the bempedoic acid by itself. I assume probably yeah. not, but. I, I, you know, I have to admit, I didn't look into that. I will just say yeah. that it, because they said they didn't really look at this as an adjuvant therapy and how much that reduces cardiovascular events, I, I just would hesitate to, to buy a pill that's a, you know, a combination when we don't know that that combination reduces events, because that's, I'm not just going for LDL lowering, which I'm sure that pill would lower LDL, but we're really going for reduction in cardiovascular events and hopefully mortality. Paul, any, I saw you nodding, but I, no, I, 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 I agree with you smart people. Like, I mean, there's going to be a market for it. They're going to be patients that it's perfect for, for me, but like, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I agree. I don't know that I'd be, I was trying to think of what hideous combination of circumstances would have to arise that would have someone on simvastatin and bempedoic acid. Like I just, I can't put the puzzle pieces <laughs> together where that would be the combo that a patient lands on, but I, anything's possible, I suppose. It, I think it's just like if people started to extrapolate, oh, well, statins help mm-hmm. and bempedoic acid seems to help if you use it by itself. So I'm going to put them on both. And then, sure. no, it makes total you know, sense. Yeah, yeah. 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 I guess. That, and they have an extra $400 a month to throw around. So. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so the last point that I wanted to make on bempedoic acid is uh, Dr. DeSalvo had mentioned that there was, you know, hot off the press in July of 2023, the same group uh, published a subgroup analysis uh, of p- using this for primary prevention because in the clear outcomes trial, as they were, they were like, oh, it actually seemed like people with who took this as a primary preventive measure, you know, they were at high cardiovascular risk, but they didn't have known cardiac disease or cardiac events. Uh, those those patients seem to do better, even even derive more benefit than patients 
who were taking it for secondary prevention. So they did this subgroup analysis and they found out that it actually uh, did, again, reduce MACE in this composite endpoint. Uh, it, and, the, and the composite endpoint this time included cardiovascular death. And when they then did another sub-analysis of the sub-analysis, Paul, they mm-hmm. found Great. that uh, it seems like all-cause mortality and cardiovascular mortality were reduced if you use bempedoic acid for primary prevention. And this was, again, studying the same clear, uh, the same patients from the CLEAR trial. So is that fishy to you, Paul? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. I, I know that you you are dubious. I, I do think, I, we were talking a little offline, I do think LDL lowering just improves outcomes in general. Yeah. So I, I would not be surprised if eventually, if we gather enough data and have studies that are rare enough to prove that actually this is decent for primary prevention, but not as good as statins. I would not be shocked by that. But right. this this is a lot of statistical stuff that's above my head and, and I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't trust anything I don't understand. Um, so I, but I'll, I'll leave it to you to, to be the, the critic. Yeah. It, no, it was above my head too. I just thought it was interesting how like the original study that was powered to look at these things, including mortality, they didn't find a mortality benefit in what would include, you would think, sicker patients who are taking it for secondary prevention. And, um, and, and the editorialists were like, in the for the initial paper, actually, the author said maybe this is because of chance that we saw this difference between primary and secondary prevention, or maybe starting bempedoic acid earlier on in the course of disease has more benefit. So, so this study is looking at that, and uh, the editorialist in JAMA that wrote the editorial, this Dr. Kazi, basically said you have to be really cautious of the statistics here because they had so many subgroup pre-specified subgroups that they were going to look at with so many different endpoints for each of those subgroups that you were bound to find some sort of false positive association. Uh, like very, he said like 99.9% likely to find some sort of false positive amongst all those subgroups. And then when you're adding things post hoc, like the, the cardiovascular endpoint and the all-cause mortality endpoint to this subgroup analysis, you're you're more likely to get just results that are due to chance. So this could be due to chance, the fact that they saw a mortality reduction. So I'm skeptical of that, but I do think bempedoic acid, uh, whether used for primary or secondary prevention, seems like it, it probably has a, an effect on major adverse cardiac events as a composite, most of that being driven by revascularization and uh, non-fatal or fatal MI. So that's that's my take-home point. No hotcakes rating for this for this show, Paul. Unless you want it, Paul. I absolutely do not. <laughs> <laughs> Any final thoughts, Nora or Paul, about that? I mean, I know we spent a bunch of time on that, but this one was a. Uh, I feel like we're going to get a lot of questions about mm-hmm. this. No final thoughts. I'm I'm excited to see sort of how this progresses and how we actually get to use it in practice once it's not three billion dollars. <laughs> it it also gives me a good uh, excuse to reference ISIS two which uh, yes. is that that iconic trial uh, that found that uh, there was a, a decreased uh, efficacy from aspirin with a couple of different astrologic signs. Yes. I'm not sure which, but it's a great example of how when you kind of slice and dice the data too much, uh, it, it can lose its meaning a little bit. Absolutely. That is, that is very true. This episode is brought to you by locumstory.com. You know, audience, we've talked about Locum Story on the show before. We've encouraged you to look into Locum Tenens because it might be right for you. Maybe you're looking for a career change. Maybe things feel stagnant. Maybe you just want to make some extra money. Maybe you want to travel a little bit. Well, everyone has a different story, different needs, wants, and goals, and how to attain them. And your story is going to determine your solution. Whatever your situation and story, Locum Tenens should be part of the conversation. How do you find out if it's a good option for you? Well, go to an unbiased, informative source like locumstory.com. You'll learn all the ins and outs of locums, details on travel and housing, assignment coordination, tax information, and more. You'll also hear firsthand stories from locums physicians from all walks of life, so you get a bigger picture of the diverse options that are available out there. Get a comprehensive view of locums and decide if it's right for you at locumstory.com. Come on, you know you're looking for a change. You're looking for new opportunities. Visit locumstory.com and see if this is right for you.
we are going to talk about VTE and cancer and uh, best practices for treating it, uh, and specifically the role of DOAX in treating and preventing recurrent VTE in cancer. Dr. Alyssa Mancini wrote a beautiful article about a pragmatic trial canvas, the name for which I like a little bit better than clear so far, uh, in Digest 43. Um, and uh, we can we can start just with a little bit of a description of Canvas. Uh, it was a pragmatic, non-inferiority, randomized trial um, that randomized patients to either DOAX or low molecular weight heparin. And just as a reminder, what does pragmatic mean? It means it's trying to model and use real-world clinical experience uh, in a clinical trial setting. Um, so the trial... Uh, investigators did not dictate which DOAC uh, needed to be used or which low molecular weight heparin needed to be used um, and left this up to the treating physician. The timing of the initiation uh, was was uh, dictated. It had to be within, a, I think, 14 days or so of diagnosis of VTE, but the choice of agent uh, was left up to the treating practitioner based on insurance, based on patient preference based on a kind of whatever host of factors would actually affect what drug you would choose in the real world setting. Um, so that was the general setup of the trial. Um, and this builds on prior trials that have compared individual uh, DOACs with low molecular weight heparin in the cancer space over the last uh, five or so years can get into a little bit of history here as well. Um, yeah. Which, so Nora, what was it that we were, we looked this up ahead of yeah, time, right? The, the clock, clock trial, trial. Yeah. from 2003 mm-hmm. used daltaparin for versus warfarin, right? Yep. For, uh, for preventing, preventing recurrent VTE in patients with cancer. And then you were just mentioning these DOAC trials mm-hmm. sort of built on that. Yeah. And, and that actually, that answered one question that I had, uh, and that I've had for a bit was, uh, why are we using daltaparin in all of these trials? And uh, because we don't, at, at least I don't use daltaparin in the real world. Um, I don't know about either of you guys. Um, I but, haven't seen yeah. I haven't seen that used. I, I think it's just maybe just where you practice. And yeah. I, I'm not sure if it's in Europe. There's more daltaparin. Mm-hmm. Uh, our audience can, can tweet at us. Yeah. Uh, we still call it tweeting on X, Paul. <laughs> What we, is it called? Do. Can X add us? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, please don't X add us. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, but all of the trials from kind of 2018 with the Select D trial, which looked at rivaroxaban versus daltaparin, um, and then uh, the 2018 trial uh, looking at edoxaban versus daltaparin, and uh, finally Caravaggio and Adam VTE. Um, which both looked at apixaban versus uh, low molecular weight heparin, also daltaparin. And all of these trials looked at both VTE risk and risk of uh, recurrent VTE, but also looked at bleeding risk over the treatment period. The bleeding risk is kind of interesting, uh, both in in the prior trials where uh, DOACs do seem individually to have slightly different bleeding profiles from one to the other. So that's worth noting. And in the in uh, this trial, in the Canvas trial, uh, there were no major differences in uh, major bleeding between the DOAX and the low molecular weight uh, heparin products. That said, apixaban was prescribed in approximately 60% of the DOAC p- cases, and apixaban is known to have or thought to have uh, a, a slightly better bleeding profile than rivaroxaban uh, or adoxaban. So kind of raises some questions about whether that decrease in major bleeding is related to just uh, the, the predominance of apixaban in the trial. I was talking about this in Morning Report today and I, I looking it up because the, we were talking about how rivaroxaban, why did it have higher GI bleeding than apixaban? Mm-hmm. And the two things that were posited in the Annals article that I found were, number one, it uh, it achieves higher 10A levels when you take it. It's mm-hmm. taken once a day in yeah. like a, a big dose compared to apixaban. And number two, maybe patients are just 
actually taking it more consistently because it's just once a day dosing. And, mm. <laughs> and that's so, really funny and probably true. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I just thought maybe, maybe that's it. I, I don't know. Um, edoxaban, I don't see much. So I, I can't remember if that's once a day or twice a day. I think it might be once a day though. So Nora, is the conclusion from this that if I, if I have a patient with cancer, anytime within the first 14 days, uh, you know, they have, they have a VTE, um, I can, I can put them on, uh, any DOAC that I can get them covered with and, and they can, they can go on their way. Yeah, I, I would say that's the that's the general summary of this. Um, it it's not to say, just to be explicit, that DOACs are better than low molecular mm-hmm. weight heparin. This was a non inferiority trial, and so low molecular weight heparin, enoxaparin, enoxaparin, daltaparin, fondaparinox, they're still options, um, but they do pose uh, issues to adherence and issues with actually patients wanting to be on them. Um, that's act- That was seen in this trial. There was a lower uh, rate of adherence with this, uh, with the low molecular weight heparin group than with the DOAC group, which kind of makes common sense uh, uh, yeah. patients maybe don't want to be using an injectable medication when there's an oral medication. Especially just, one that makes you bleed. And like, I've had yeah. a lot of patients with horrible b- yeah. bruising and oozing. And from like those rashes sites. also, yeah. which is interesting. Well, and the, and the dosing, um, yeah. I mean, is, is that nightmare is probably overstating, but you have to do the weight-based dosing and that mm-hmm. means getting an accurate weight and sort of do it twice. It's all of it. And recognizing that there might be some adjustments for weight for some of the DOACs, but it's just, it's just logistically much, much harder to do a little more weight heparin than, than most of the DOACs we have access to. And there's, there is some question about kind of whether the, the different recommended dosing regimens for enoxaparin between the twice daily and the once daily, whether those weight-based dosing strategies are actually equivalent and kind of thinking about cancer as a like very hypercoagulable state and differentially hypercoagulable between different cancers. Yeah. Um, yeah. You really, yeah. You, it, it's, uh, it's actually somewhat more nuanced. So I, I totally agree that, that kind of just going off of weight-based dosing with, with injectables doesn't always work as well as you hope it would. Is the thinking that the, uh, twice daily dosing is like a better, a better way to go if you're concerned in that way? Yeah, um, I, this is this is anecdotal data, but I've had a couple of patients who came in who were taking their their once daily dosing, which is uh, higher dosing than the twice daily dosing, um, who had enoxaparin failure. And the thought being that even though you get to the right dose because it's once daily and the half life of the drug doesn't quite cover the full day, you you kind of hit a trough that's lower than the therapeutic range. Um, mm. And so that that's the kind of reason for, mm-hmm. and th- that may relate to the rivaroxaban increased bleeding risk as well. You kind of go higher uh, potentially than the, the target goal of, uh, Understood. of uh, anticoagulation. So, yeah. So pharmacodynamics, pharmacokinetics. I I remember all that (laughs) stuff, Nora. Come on. I love that. Uh, We should have a pharmacist with us on this. uh, That would be great. (laughs) You know, audience, all of us, we all have to write. Sometimes it's for work. Maybe we're creating a presentation. Maybe we're writing a letter of recommendation, sending emails. You know, it can be hard to get started writing, but with Grammarly, it's there to support you from the beginning to the end of your project. For over 10 years, Grammarly has been powered by AI technology that you can trust and rely on to help you across all the places where you write most. And now Grammarly helps you do even more because with one click, you can easily brainstorm, rewrite, and reply quickly with suggestions based on your context and your goals so you can improve productivity for you and your teams. For my work on Curbsiders, I use Grammarly all the time because it follows me through my email, when I'm working on show notes, when I'm making figures for the show. I want to get it right. I want it to look good. I want it to sound good. And Grammarly helps me. Grammarly has all these great tools. So let's say you're feeling stuck. You're working on some writing. Grammarly can give you ideas on where to get started. It can make outlines and it can even give you tips. So you can do things like highlight some text and say, give me 10 possible taglines for a video thumbnail for a YouTube video I'm working on. 
or if you want to polish your writing, Grammarly can help you paraphrase and rewrite to be more concise instantly. So just highlight the text and ask it to improve it or shorten it, and Grammarly can do that for you. Grammarly is a wonderful tool, so go to Grammarly.com slash go to download it free today. That's Grammarly, G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash go. Grammarly.com slash go. We should move on to another topic unless there's any other big points that you'd like to to raise here. Maybe we, maybe we could go to Paul for... Paul, you want to talk some smoking cessation or always uh, or the unpronounceable <laughs> GLP-1 agonist that you're going to tell us about? Oh, I think cytosynoclin is actually harder than the GLP-1 agonist. I was uh, going to say, name. you got some drug names that were challenging today. And I'll say the GLP-1 non-peptide, it falls out of my brain <laughs> as soon as I stop looking at it. Like, I'll, there's going to be, that's going to be a mess when we get to it. But let's do the cytosynoclin first, which I actually looked at the pronunciation and feel pretty good about. So this is... a study that came out, this is covered in uh, issue 43 uh, by, by Dr. Laura Glick in the Digest. And this is basically looking at a medication or a substance, at least, that's been around for decades and has been used in Central Europe, kind of unregulated, but not outside of there. Uh, and it's, it's a neat medication. It's a plant-based al- alkaloid that works as a partial agonist um, for alpha-4, beta-2, nicotinic acetylcholine receptor subtype. So Basically, and this could be a complete misunderstanding, but it actually feels a little analogous to uh, um, buprenorphine for me in that because of the partial agonism, you're sort of binding to the receptor and preventing the withdrawal symptoms, but also you're sort of blocking the effects of, of nicotine reinforcing itself if one should smoke. So the way that it works is, is kind of neat and similar to varenicline, which I think we all have a fair amount of comfort with. So the substance has existed, it's been used, but the, the recommended dosing no one seems to know where it initially came from. So the dosing that's been used is not based on any of the pharmacodynamics for some reason. So basically the authors um, decided to actually look at a dosing that kind of made more sense based on its half-life. So the, the suggested dosing for this product initially was 1.5 milligram tablets taken six times a day, Matt, and then sort of tapered over the course of 20-some weeks. Sure, that's or 20 easy. 20-some days. It just, it's, six I mean, times a day? <laughs> sure. I don't even know and how you mark was out six times a day. No way an issue. Schedule, yeah. Um, so instead this, the author studied taking three times a day, which is still not nothing, um, versus placebo for, for six weeks or 12 weeks. And they were just looking at cigarettes. It's important to recognize that they excluded patients who use non-cigarette tobacco products. So this is not for chewing tobacco or vaping or, or any of these other, uh, hookah use. They, I, I'm not sure if they mentioned hookahs or not. I just like saying that word out loud. <laughs> it's also <laughs> worth noting they excluded patients with, um, a lot of sort of mental health diagnoses and then also patients with substance use disorder were also excluded from this trial as well. So they were really looking at just cigarette smokers without a whole lot else going on here. And the average smoker, and I should I should rephrase that and use patient-centered language, the average patient who smoked, smoked about a pack a day. So I think it was like 19 cigarettes per day. So like a good amount that was included in the trial. So long story short is that the abstinence rates were good for the cytosine compared to placebo. So we're looking at Absence of about 25.3% versus 4.4% with placebo at, at the end of weeks three through six with the six-week course. And then this dropped sort of later on, and they studied all the way out to, to 24 weeks. The the 12-week treatment, which was the other arm that they looked at compared to placebo, actually had a higher maintenance of abstinence sort of all the way out to the end. But both were significantly better than placebo. And they were this was tolerated about the same as, as varenicline was. So the, and the same sort of effects that you would expect with it, um, that, that patients report. So nausea, insomnia, weird dreams, um, were the side effects that were, that were most mentioned. Probably worth noting that the dreams and the insomnia were the highest actually in the, the cytosynicline group compared to placebo, but both groups had um, about, I think, similar amounts of nausea for whatever it's worth. My bottom line for this, and, and we'll just make this a relatively quick hit, is like, I, I think it's it's going, I would be shocked if it wasn't approved. Like, it's been around, it seems to have a great safety profile. I think it's exciting to have another tool in our armamentarium against tobacco use, which is our number one modifiable cause of early mortality. Um, so I, I, I think, it, I mean, it's obviously not immediately practice changing because it's not approved yet. Um, but I, I think that it will be, I think the TID dosing might be a burden to some patients, but Verena cleans twice daily. Um, and if patients prefer sort of a more natural approach to their tobacco cessation compared to the, the poison smoke they're inhaling, um, <laughs> then this might be this might be a very reasonable choice for them. And it'll be exciting to see sort of how it works in, in combination with nicotine replacement or sort of another broader groups once it, once it takes broader traction. So I, I am personally excited about this. I don't know. Um, 
Matt, if you had any different thoughts about this or viewed it any differently at all. My one of my thoughts was just like we talked about endless varenicline, right? We talked yeah. with mm-hmm. Dr. Carolyn Chan. She was saying how she has patients, they've taken it more than a year, maybe even two years. And the typical course is like uh, for varenicline, I used to always think of was 12 weeks. And I, I wonder if this medication is going to be the same where it's something that they can do multiple courses of it or they can stay on it long term if they need to for smoking cessation. Because when they stopped at week 12 or week yeah. six, you did see a fall off in uh, in smoking cessation. So I wonder. Yeah, no, I think it's a great point. And I, I would be I would be surprised if it was another if it, if it wasn't very analogous to clean, which it works in a similar way to where you'd, some patients just may need very prolonged courses of it. And it's probably still safer than inhaling tobacco smoke. Right. Well, Paul, you know, something that I always thought safe was eating meat. But uh, <laughs> people love meat, Matt. We've talked about that people, on the show before. People love meat, Paul. Uh, I once again love meat. I'm eating meat again, Paul. There's a recommendation uh, for meat. We've talked about it. It's people yeah. should eat meat. Uh, and Except so, these people. Covered by, Beth, <laughs> covered by Dr. Beth Garbatelli in the digest issue number 44. Caught my eye. This was alpha-gal syndrome, Paul. So this is... Have Alpha-Gal, had you heard of this uh, before Before we covered this in the digest, Paul or Nora? It had, I think, floated in the periphery of my brain, and then I think I immediately discounted it as not a real thing, um, much <laughs> to my shame, um, until uh, I think the, the CDC uh, sort of update came out that said how prevalent it was and how we should be paying more attention to it. But I, I think I heard about it and thought, well, that, that can't be real. Um, yeah. Shamefully. Yeah, I, I had heard kind of friends of friends who said someone got a meat allergy all of a sudden. And, uh, that, that was pretty much the extent of it. Uh, and I, uh, I thought it was tick related, but I wasn't sure. So this was a great update. (laughs) I heard about it from my father-in-law because he's an outdoorsman, Mm. uh, and, and he very aware of ticks. And he sent me an article like, Hey, have you heard of this? It seems like this could be a problem. And, uh, so the CDC put out this, Geographic Distribution of Suspected Alpha-Gal Syndrome Cases in the United States from January 2017 to December 2022. And it's scary that there was, they estimate that there may have been something like 96,000 to 450,000 patients affected by Alpha-Gal Syndrome since 2010. And they did some, I guess, modeling uh, to, to look at that based on a, a whole bunch of different things. But Alpha-Gal Syndrome, so it's a mammalian meat allergy and they think that the tick saliva somehow sensitizes you against this uh, alpha-gal, which is found on in mammalian meat products. So things like, uh, of course, cows, sheep, and pigs, and then their innards uh, or, or products that come from them. So even dairy could be a problem for you know, some Matt, people. Muscles are also in the cows, sheep, and pigs, by the way. And They're muscles. Not the <laughs> that's the meat. Yeah, that, that's the meat. But uh, Paul, I, I must have misspoke. I, But also so, medications yeah. like cetuximab um, and Gelatin, even, maybe, yeah. a, even maybe porcine heart valves, Paul, could be a problem. So this could be a big deal if this becomes more widespread because mm-hmm. Even like inactive ingredients uh, in certain foods and gelatin and things like that, some people are even sensitive to that. So this could be scary um, because the symptoms, uh, of course, they're on a spectrum. It's an allergic reaction. It's not like when you, uh, if you have a peanut allergy within minutes, like you get the reaction. It seems like it's delayed. It's something like between two and eight hours, people get symptoms, which could be hives, could be angioedema could be anaphylaxis. Uh, sometimes people have just stomach upset as one of the main symptoms. Um, the most the most common, as you'd expect, would be like cutaneous, but GI are second most common in about 75% of patients uh, diagnosed with alpha-gal, followed by respiratory, oropharyngeal, and cardiovascular, like syncope. So this, this can be a scary thing if people get it. And uh, I mean, the diagnosis is, as you'd expect, delayed because a lot of people don't know about it. Paul, what do you think about the sensitivity specificity? <laughs> yeah, well, you're talking. <laughs> so the article cites um, the sensitivity and specificity of the testing. So apparently you test um, serum IgE, but 
that, that has to be in the context of someone who's aware that the disease exists, which I thought was a really great <laughs> caveat. So the sensitivity goes way up if you know that this is a thing. If you don't think to test for it, then apparently the test is not very good. So I thought that was a really helpful tidbit. I, and I think they're also saying that if you know that it exists, then you would know you would have a clinical suspicion. OK, this is in an area where there's ticks that might carry this and the patient has symptoms that unexplained, you know, symptoms that could be an aller allergic symptom. There's yes, a group at UNC Chapel Hill that publishes about this. Uh, one of the papers we can put in the show notes is called the the meat of the matter, understanding and managing alpha-gal syndrome. And uh, I found that to be a very helpful article with some helpful figures and things. And uh, they talk about how avoidance is the main thing. 80% of patients can be managed just by avoiding mammalian meats. Uh, but another 15% would also need to avoid uh, dairy products. Uh, and then another 5% would even need to avoid gelatin-containing foods. So uh, if you live in the southern, midwestern, or mid-Atlantic United States, those seem to be the areas where there's high risk and the ticks that transmit it. The Lone Star tick is one of the main ones. So alpha-gal, Paul, you know, this this kind of thing is right up my alley, Paul, right? Because it's, uh, it's just kind of a fun, di it's not a fun diagnosis for the patient, but it's just like, it's one of those things like you hear, that can't exist. I don't think that exists. A it's tick's going to give me a meat allergy and then, no, it does exist. And uh it's apparently becoming more common. Or it's been around and just unrecognized. Yeah, it's, I, I imagine right. with the awareness, we're going to see the prevalence go way up. So fascinating, fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah, it's interesting. We don't even know for sure whether only the Lone Star tick carries it or whether other ticks carry it. And I think that's probably pretty important in terms of thinking about your kind of overall risk in, uh, from a geographic perspective. Yeah. We're, we're seeing it in areas where, where Lone Star ticks are not all that endemic, so... I, I think other ticks do carry it too, yeah. from what I was reading. So I, I think the Lone Star is the one that they think was, you know, maybe that's the highest risk, but I think yeah. other ticks carry it as well. Says the coolest name. Yeah, it's true. Well, Nora, you know, speaking of cool things to talk mm. about, uh, what about, let's, we've talked about kiwis before <laughs> on the show, but I know you wanted to just briefly highlight uh, talking about kiwis again for constipation. Uh, is this a pot? Was there a positive, another positive study for kiwis? There was, there was, how did you know? Um, I mean, I will, we'll get into it, but I have my concerns about industry, uh, industry sponsoring <laughs> here, but, um, <laughs> I should mention, and I'm not even joking. Uh, I did, I do have a cousin who works for a company that sells golden kiwis. So that's my disclosure. As we talk about this article, I like found that rich. out after Paul and I had already been <laughs> obsessed with using kiwis to treat constipation. So I, I don't, I, that did not influence my enthusiasm about this topic, but I did want to disclose that. I, I suggested this topic myself. So <laughs> there was no, no undue influence from Matt here. Um, but yes, yeah, so the latest trial, and this is the biggest trial so far, uh, in the, in the kiwi space for constipation, <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, it was just published in the American Journal of Gastroenterology. Dr. Laura Glick covered it in Digest 43. Um, and uh, this trial looked at green kiwi. So prior trials have looked at golden kiwi or yellow kiwi. Um, the and, best kiwi, as Nat would say. <laughs> yeah, I, I, need, I now need to do a kind of uh, a blind taste test or something because I have no idea what the difference is between the two of them. Um, but this looked at patients with functional constipation uh, as well as constipation-predominant irritable bowel syndrome and also healthy controls and compared uh, consumption of two green kiwi fruits versus psyllium, uh, seven and a half or so grams uh, daily um, at improvement in uh, constipation-related symptoms. Um, and it was a crossover trial design, so it had a washout period in the middle uh, and then a switch of uh, of uh, treatment arms. And um, overall, the, the trial was a positive trial uh, and demonstrated uh, an improvement in uh, constipation-related symptoms and an improvement in uh, complete spontaneous bowel movements, or CSBM, uh, uh, every week uh, by about one and a half for the green kiwi fruits. Um, 
And this was uh, across all of uh, the groups, uh, whereas the cilium only improved this in the um, IBSC group. So, right. and Nora, overall, was this blinded? Uh, hmm? Was this blinded? Ha. <laughs> um, sorry, carry on. Uh, Sadly, no. That was one of the one of the limitations mm. of the study. Um, just for everyone's knowledge, they didn't uh, eat the skin of the kiwi. Um, Thank you. I don't know Very if anyone. Important. I don't know if anyone does that, but they didn't. <laughs> um, and uh, they used green kiwi, uh, and they also. And I just I found this charming, uh, but uh, they in order to encourage adherence to the study intervention, they gave extra kiwi to the families to account for household members who might want to eat kiwis as well. So that's nice. Yeah. Yeah, so well, the first taste is free. And then uh, <laughs> exactly. yeah. I know exactly. And it was <laughs> sponsored by the company, uh-huh. this trial. So, uh, uh, and, and in the introduction to the, um, trial, uh, and kind of the, the, uh, intent and background uh, regarding the reasoning to to do the trial, um, they they expressed an interest in trying to obtain a health claim in Europe, uh, which is apparently a label that com- that companies and products can get in order to de- uh, to uh, demonstrate their kind of health uh, benefits. So uh, that that was the reason for the trial being sponsored. This episode is brought to you by Pathway. Hey, audience, you've heard me talk about this on the show before. Pathway is a clinical decision support tool that's free to use, and it helps you make evidence-based decisions more quickly and efficiently when you're caring for patients. I know you're busy, but I also know you want to take great care of your patients like I do. What I like about Pathway is it's easy to get. You just go in the App Store, download it for free, and it's got this modern, user-friendly interface that simplifies guidelines, trials, and other complex medical data so that you can use it quickly right at the point of care. So let's say I'm about to see a patient with adrenal insufficiency and I need to refresh myself on the topic. I can quickly pull up the Pathway app and I see right in there, they have the guidelines nicely summarized. I can go through the medical management, the diagnostic investigations. And when I'm in the room with the patient, I can sound like a genius, which you know that that's important to me. That's probably important to you too. You want to sound like you know what you're talking about. So get the Pathway app today. If you want to improve your clinical decision-making, enhance patient care, make sure that you're giving the latest up-to-date recommendations when you're caring for your patients. Get the Pathway app today by visiting pathway.md. That's pathway.md. You know, I, I think it's it's ni- a nice option for patients. Two kiwis a day can help with constipation. It's, it's more enjoyable, I imagine, than taking psyllium fiber. So, you know, why not? And my cousin, uh, his company benefits. So let's, let's, let's come on, people. Yeah. Prescribe kiwis to your patients. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> a little yellow, better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we haven't done that trial yet, so we don't know. <laughs> uh, that was a Wayne's World joke that probably just me, Paul, and my one friend from uh, med school both really enjoyed. <laughs> and it was perfect, by the way. I feel like we should have just acknowledged that. <laughs> All right, Paul. Speaking of perfect, uh, how about you tell us about a perfectly named GLP-1 non-peptide GLP-1 peptide? I don't know why I did this to myself. Yeah, we're going to talk about, oh God, Oforglibrahan. <laughs> Rolls off the tongue. <laughs> For adults uh, with obesity, this was nicely summarized by Dr. Alyssa Mancini in Digest issue number 44. Um, and this is a trial and in the our beloved New England Journal of Medicine and, and talking about beloved GLP-1 agonists, obviously they don't need any more ink spilled about them. We love them. They're great for um, everything, uh, including diabetes and weight loss. And in, at least in regard to the weight loss issue, one of the barriers to entry that I think we can probably all identify is a lot of patients don't like the idea of injectable medications for weight loss. As, yeah. as effective as the GLPs are, especially you know daily injections for some of the agents, and then even the weekly injections, I think are a burden for a lot of patients, even though um, as much as we talk and we try to do about how small the needle is now, it's just a pen, that kind of stuff. Like there are some patients who are really bothered by the idea right. of injecting themselves mm-hmm. and it's, it's hard to fault them. We do have an oral GLP-1 agent that is for diabetes. So we do have oral semaglutide. 
but that has not been demonstrated to be as effective for weight loss as is its injectable cousins. Um, and so this study basically looked at this very specific non-peptide GLP-1 receptor agonist, uh, uh, O4-Glipron. Am I missing a syllable on there? I feel like I might be. <laughs> I think you got think it you that got time. It. Okay, I feel like I'm doing great, actually. Um, but anyway, it looked at that this particular agent in patients with obesity or with overweight plus a comorbidity that was related to weight without diabetes. So that's a key point. See, these are patients who did not have diabetes. The patients with overweight, the comorbidity had to include either hypertension, dyslipidemia, cardiovascular disease, or obstructive sleep apnea. And these, they were looking at adults. They enrolled patients age 18 to 75 years of age. They interestingly had to have a stable body weight for the, the past three months prior to randomization so they couldn't be rapidly gaining or losing weight, which, which makes sense, but would have never occurred to me when designing this. Um, and then they were randomized to receive a dose of either 12 milligrams, 24 milligrams, 36 milligrams, 45 milligrams, or placebo once daily for 36 weeks. And there's a fairly complicated initiation and dose titration schedule for each of those regimens. Um, and really, at the end of the day, in addition to sort of proving this was efficacious and safe, they were also, it looks like, just trying to find out the best way to actually start and continue this medication that would be tolerated, and which was very interesting um, in reading the discussion at the end. But it's the the long story short, uh, this the percent and the primary endpoint they were looking at was percentage of change from body weight at week twenty six, um, and it was deemed adequately powered two hundred seventy patients. They got two hundred seventy two, so just over the wire, and basically weight loss happened, um, and, and a good amount of weight loss. The percent weight change ranged anywhere between like eight and thirteen percent, so around ten percent for patients, and it was dose dependent. It was continuous. It occurred throughout the trial. So this was happening even through week 36 when they actually stopped looking. Um, and then they also looked at some cardiometabolic profiles. So it actually patients fascinatingly and not surprisingly had better systolic blood pressures. They lost like I think the mean difference was they were down by like 10 points systolic by the end of the trial. Um, they had changes to the lipid profile that were favorable. So in addition to just the absolute weight loss, we're actually seeing some cardiometabolic changes that are of course the things that we get excited about and actually matter when we're trying to prevent disease. In terms of the adverse events, they were GI-related, as you as you might expect, um, not dissimilar to the, the GLP-1 agonists. Um, a fairly high number, between 10 and 20% of participants uh, across the cohorts. And basically, it's, it seemed to happen with dose initiation and then kind of fall off once patients sort of reached their steady state. And it did seem to depend on what dose they were started at. So the, the authors do note that this will probably inform their phase three trial in terms of how they actually start and titrate the medications. They can sort of minimize these GI side effects that the patients are having. Um, but for me, like, again, this is another medication. I know my, all my hot takes are on things that we can't actually prescribe yet, but I think having an oral GLP-1 agent for weight loss is, would be game changing. I think if they can just sort of figure out how to figure out the dosings that patients aren't having, um, you know, awful GI symptoms that don't limit its use, um, better still. And it, it seems very encouraging in terms of the outcomes that we're actually looking at. So I, I, I think once, once it's broadly available, which is probably going to be years from now, this is going to be a really exciting medication and, and in addition to our momentarium. Yeah, I don't know. I wonder if insurance companies are going to start to just like do the math and say, okay, it, it if we help people get healthier by helping them lose weight, then we can save costs in the long run. But I, I don't know if they're, I don't know if it work, quite works that way because people aren't necessarily with insurance companies for twenty or thirty years, you know, like to to get to these long term benefits. I, I don't, I don't know, but it it does seem right now it's going to be a little bit of a wait. To, to be able to prescribe these widely. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see sort of which capitalist impulse sort of wins in that <laughs> in that fight. So, yeah, I don't know. So to round things out here, uh, just wanted to briefly mention uh, Dr. Alexander Chetoff in Digest number 44 talked about the monoclonal antibody drugs for Alzheimer's, uh, specifically targeting amyloid plaques, how there is a very peculiar, it's called coverage with evidence development where for lecanemab, uh, it's, you can receive the drug only if you're in a registry. Uh, and I believe aducanemab is, uh, you have to be part of basically part of a clinical trial to receive that one. And now there's a, a new kit on the block, which is, uh, donanemab, which is, I, I would say probably the most exciting one. This was the trailblazer, tra trailblazer alls two trial, Paul. Any comments? I, I, it feels like they're not really trying. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they have uh, two Zs in the Two names, Zs, yeah. So that's yeah. pretty Great impressive. Yeah. <laughs> so 
this was a trial that uh, it was a positive trial, definitely had some limitations. Um, the consort diagram specifically, they really had to randomize a lot of patients. Um, and it, it appears to me they did a per protocol analysis, like even after they randomized a couple hundred patients are missing from the final analysis in both groups. But while this drug, donanumab, had a relatively small change in the in this this score they were looking at it was like 144 point dementia scale it was a an absolute difference of about 3 points uh between the treatment arm and the other tre- and the and the placebo arm um they did notice that about 18% more patients so 47% in the treatment arm versus 29% in the donanumab arm had no clinical progression at 1 year and that was even without receiving indefinite treatment. So they in this in this study, if they they were doing MRIs serially, looking for microhemorrhage, edema, and plaque burden, uh, and if they saw that enough plaque was removed, then they could stop the drug and continue to follow the patients clinically. So this was the first one out of the drugs that really showed this sort of halting of progression, and. I would say this is maybe like hypothesis or encouraging, or I, I don't know that I completely believe this wasn't due to chance or something, but it is certainly exciting. And uh, it's interesting to see these drugs in this coverage with uh, exception, you know, this the coverage with evidence development. I had never heard of that before. You always want to be like cautiously optimistic about these medications these days, just because I feel like we've been hurt so many times, so many times in the past. You know, the the agents that we have are just not really all that impressive from a, a clinical standpoint. And there's a lot of sort of the landscape around the treatment um, options for dementia just seems to be constantly changing. So it's just it's hard to know what to be excited about, what not. So it's just this is not very scientific, but I'm sort of cautious about all these findings sure. until sort of more data rolls in. Nora. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think it is notable that this uh, treatment with the donanumab was only uh, for a temporary period of time, not not indefinite uh, compared to the prior trial, Um, and uh, that people were able to come off of it based on their imaging criteria change. I think that's interesting. Um, I don't know exactly what to make of it, but kind of the fact that a majority of patients were able to uh, suggest that perhaps it's, uh, it, it will have some, some benefit in more patients rather than fewer. But I agree that, and, and kind of how to interpret the, the two to 3% absolute benefit uh, is it's really challenging to know what exactly to do with that um, in any of these trials. I, I think uh, I would I would remind people of the Jerry Powell podcast. Uh, they do great work and I know they really talk about these medications uh, and they have subject matter expertise, which I do not. So I, I think that is really needed to, to accurately interpret this this kind of thing. Uh, so that's all we'll say about that. So, uh, you know, encouraging, maybe, I mean, it's, it's exciting. It's, it's the worst disease out there. So I, I think it'd be great if we had something that could actually fight it and halt progression. Um, Nora, take us home. Uh, we had one, one last topic we wanted to talk about. So last but not least, we've got a little discussion about Zoranolone, uh, which just received FDA approval. Um, for those of you who might not have heard of it until a few weeks ago, I don't think any of us had either. It's an oral drug, um, and it just received FDA approval for postpartum depression. Um, this actually is a is a big milestone because no medications, no oral medications, that is, have uh, received FDA approval for this specific indication, and it's an underdiagnosed and undertreated disease um, affecting uh, somewhere around 20% of of, uh, postpartum patients, perhaps even more. And so the FDA approved this on the basis of two trials, um, Skylark and Robin, both of which I like the names of, actually. Yeah, Perhaps I the best of any of these, yeah. Um, so I'll just end there, you know, with that. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, um, no. So uh, Skylark was the most recent trial, and it randomized 200 women with postpartum depression to 50 milligrams of zoranolone or placebo once daily. And this was only for 14 days, uh, with, 
which is worth noting. Robin had a very similar structure, but with a slightly lower dose. Um, and then subsequent trials had looked at this higher dose um, and seen uh increased efficacy at higher dose without compromise of safety. And so that's why Skylark actually used the 50 milligram dosing. There was a significant placebo effect across the studies and across arms um, with uh, around a kind of 30% response rate, even in the placebo arms. Um, But both trials, both Skylark and Robin, found a statistically significant reduction in uh, the depression rating score uh, in the group receiving xuranolone compared to placebo. And this was at day 15, um, but persisted through day 40, day 45. Um, and Nora, we talked about, you said statistically significant, which it was, but also we, we looked the Hamilton depression scale. Mm-hmm. The patients were starting at a score of close to 29 and they dropped by 15.6 points in the in the treatment group and 11.6 points in the placebo group. So this this was a significant response. Remission on that scale would have been a score of less than seven. So they didn't get necessarily get patients into remission um, or on average, they didn't get patients into remission, but it, it does seem like this isn't one of those things where they say statistical significance, but we don't care about it. This seemed, right. it seemed like it had some weight to mm-hmm. it. And looking at the remission rates, they did have an increase in both of those, both at day 15 and day 45, Um, I think 27% by day 15 and 44% by day 45, which thinking about how slowly a lot of other antidepressants can work, this is is pretty quick on the spectrum of things. Um, And that's one of the reasons that that this drug was of interest in this, this specific context. Only other kind of couple things uh, that I think are worth noting is that um, there was a prior IV uh, analog of this uh, that was approved for the same indication, but it caused very severe somnolence and sedation. And so you have to be hospitalized for, I think, more than two days for monitoring because of that. Ideal. Yeah. So so that that has really not affected the market all that much. Um, (laughs) People aren't interested in that for some reason with newborns. And the Zoranolone, which is the oral version that was just FDA approved, does have uh, side effects of somnolence, dizziness, and sedation, um, which did warrant some dose reduction, but not as substantial. And there were no major adverse events from that. Yeah, this would be another one. I mean, it's it's just so new. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I imagine maybe some you know, obstetricians uh, will be maybe prescribing this for their patients. I, I tend to, patients tend to leave my orbit uh, when they're in the, like my young, healthy patients who are having babies tend to leave. And then I see them months later and like, oh yeah, I have a six month old now. I, I don't know how often I'll be needing to prescribe this, but I do think that this is an important, you know, development and something that we should be aware of, especially uh, I just always like to know what meds are out there, what potential side effects are out mm-hmm. there. As an internist, uh, I think that's a big part of our job. I think there are certain domains in internal medicine where you sort of serve as the the functional or de facto PCP, where you actually might see these patients relatively quickly postpartum. I'm thinking like the addiction medicine space specifically. Yeah. I feel like you might yeah. have very short term mm-hmm. follow up, and this this might be oftentimes the one managing the mental health issues of patients as well. So this this might be. So I I, I might be seeing this more often than I would expect. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and Nora, I can't remember if you said this or not, but this is. They're not recommending breastfeeding at this point yeah, because I was they don't know the safety yeah, stuff. That's exactly right. I was going to say the two caveats to this. They, they, the trial did not let patients or, or said that they should not be breastfeeding during the trial. And so we really don't know whether it's safe to breastfeed. Would assume not. Um, and, uh, and then the only other caveat to this is that there were patients who were on other antidepressants during the trial that were presumably kind of taking longer to kick in. And so there isn't an absolute contraindication or even a relative one, to my knowledge, to having patients on both this and on an SSRI kind of waiting for it to kick in. Well, we have covered so much tonight. I think we probably should at some point end the show and uh, be on our ways. Uh, Paul probably hasn't eaten dinner yet. Um, so, so uh, any last comments before we get to the outro? No? <laughs> you guys are terrific. You're just smart and well-spoken. <laughs> Paul, can you say, what was the name of that GLP-1 agonist again? It's, like, I, it's immediately right out of my brain. Like, it is gone. Um, <laughs> Oh, for the prod? 
There you and go. And I will always do it with a question mark, too. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Great, strong. Get your show notes at curbsiders.com and sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, once each month, you'll get our Curbsiders Digest, which we've been talking about at length, which recaps the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we're committed to high-value practice-changing knowledge, so we want your feedback. You can email us at scurbsiders at gmail.com. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show uh, wherever it exists, YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for CME through VCU at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Also wanted to thank all of our patrons for supporting the show. If you're not yet one, you can sign up to receive bonus episodes and all sorts of other special perks at patreon.com slash curbsiders. A special thanks to our writers and producers for this episode, Dr. Nora Toronto, Dr. Paul Williams, and I guess myself, and to our whole team. Our, our show is produced by, and edited by the team at Podpace. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media. Chris the Chu Manchu runs our Discord. Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. And with all that, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watt. I've been Dr. Nora Toronto. And as always, our main Dr. Paul Nelson Williams, thank you and goodbye.